Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. This is Carrie Lucas, Managing Director of the Independent Women's Forum, and welcome to this Working for Women podcast. I'm delighted to be here with Erin Morrow-Hawley. Erin is an Associate Professor of Law at the University of Missouri, a former clerk for Chief Justice John Roberts and IWF's Senior Fellow for Legal Affairs. And today we're going to be talking about the Supreme Court. Erin, thanks so much for being with me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, now, Erin, you know, earlier this month, the Senate confirmed Judge Neil Gorsuch to succeed the late Justice Anton Scalia as successor to the, on the U.S. Supreme Court. But, you know, it really wasn't an easy process getting him confirmed. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened um, and uh, what, what it took to make sure that uh, Justice um, Gorsuch got an up and down vote by the Senate? Uh, absolutely. And as you mentioned, Carrie, it was a very unusual confirmation uh, proceeding. So the Constitution provides that the president shall appoint, subject to the advice and the consent of the Senate, Supreme Court justices. So what this has typically meant in recent years is that the president shall nominate someone, and then the Judiciary Committee holds a hearing, uh, looks through uh, typically a judge's uh, record, uh, everything that that person has written, um, all the speeches that person has given. Uh, then the committee reports them out, and the full Senate usually votes uh, yes or no on the nominee. Um, but the Senate rules, and that only requires a majority vote uh, to confirm a justice. But the Senate rules provide uh, that a filibuster can happen. And when a filibuster happens, uh, the Senate rules used to provide that it took 60 votes to end debate and force a vote. Now, typically for Supreme Court justices, uh, the threat of filibuster hasn't really been utilized um, there was a threat of it um, against uh, Justice Alito, uh, but they had the 60 votes uh, to overcome that threat. But in this instance, there was not the 60 votes needed to overcome the filibuster when a few Democrats decided to do this. So what the Republicans did is they employed what's called the nuclear option, and they changed the rules um, to allow for an up or down vote um, on just 50 votes. Uh, so in order to end the filibuster, they just needed 50 votes. And then Judge Gorsuch was confirmed by a count of 54 to 45. Now, it's important to note in this rule change uh, that the Democrats had themselves used the so-called nuclear option in 2013 for lower court nominees uh, and also for cabinet appointments. Uh, so to, to sort of encapsulate it, it was a rule change that allowed the Republicans to end debate and force an up or down vote uh, on now Justice Gorsuch. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because you're right. We've been hearing you know, obviously the Democrats and Harry Reid was kind of pioneered this um, this new rule change, um, but everybody had really been kind of dreading the idea of this being employed with the um, the Supreme Court. Uh, are you kind of surprised that the Senate Democrats, you know, went to such lengths to stop Gorsuch, someone who'd you know received high marks and praise for his demeanor and judgment over the years, um, not only from Republicans but Democrats as well? Um, you know, but are you surprised that, that it, it took this on such a kind of not controversial nominee? Uh, absolutely. As you point out, Carrie, the uh, sort of qualifications of Judge Gorsuch um, are impeccable. The ABA gave him his highest rating when he was confirmed to be a Court of Appeals judge on the Tenth Circuit. He was confirmed by a voice vote with no dissenters. 
So something that's quite unusual. So a very qualified individual, even Senator Schumer, who is the Democrat sort of leading the charge against his nomination, you know, called him a very sharp, a very articulate, and someone who possesses a superb judicial demeanor. So I do find it a little strange that the Democrats chose this particular candidate uh, to filibuster. Um, you know, there's no question that he's qualified. There's no question. Uh, that he would uh, make an excellent justice, um, but nevertheless, a few senators decided uh, to filibuster. Yeah. Well, you know, and I would think that also, in some ways, this one also shouldn't have been such a big deal since Gorsuch was replacing Scalia. Um, so effectively, this was maintaining the balance of the court since both, the court, since both had similar judicial philosophies. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we it's possible that, that we may have um, another uh, opening in the Supreme Court if something, if uh, one of the current justices decides to retire. What do you anticipate happening, or happening if, if that event occurs, if uh, this administration does need to appoint another um, nominee? You know, Carrie, that's a really interesting question, and I, I think it is surprising that the Democrats actually chose to filibuster um, Judge and now Justice Gorsuch uh, precisely for that reason. There are at least three justices who are nearing the age uh, when justices typically retire, and so there may well be a chance, probably will be a chance for President Trump to appoint a new justice. And as you said, that new justice will change the balance of the court uh, more than likely, depending if it's President Trump appoints uh, someone uh, in the mold of uh, now Justice Gorsuch uh, along the lines of the list of potential nominees that he replaced, uh, any of those judges on that list uh, would likely swing the balance of the court to the right. So in some senses, um, I'm surprised that the Democrats didn't keep their powder dry and wait for a nominee who would change the balance of the court to employ the filibuster. Um, but now, uh, if and when there is a new nominee, then presumably the same rules will be in place and that nominee will get an up, up or down vote um, without uh, uh, the chance of a filibuster. Well, you know, yeah, and that's, that's really that's interesting. You know, and I, it's, it's interesting as we kind of talk about, about um, the Supreme Court um, and these fights for these nominees, um, we often kind of talk about it in political terms, left and right, and, um, you know, as if there's a liberal justices and conservative justices. Um, but, you know, I think that there's kind of more to it than that. And I, I know from talking with you before and reading your, your work um, uh, that the different judicial philosophies, uh, you know, shouldn't kind of, it's kind of a mis misrepresentation to look at it those terms. Can you kind of tell us a little bit why Americans, you know, regardless of the, their policy preferences, ought to favor judicial philosophy that seeks to interpret the letter of the law, as, you know, um, as Justice Gorsuch had um, kind of focused on, um, rather than rewrite it or interpret it based on their policy preferences? So absolutely. So it really um, comes down to a matter of the rule of law and sort of separation of powers principles and who it is that we want to be uh, writing our laws and who it is that's given the task of interpreting it. Uh, so Justice Scalia um, and also uh, now Justice Gorsuch both believe in what's called originalism. And this basically means that the Constitution sort of means what it says, that the words of the Constitution uh, have meaning and we should give them effect. And the way that uh, Justice Gorsuch would determine that meaning is to look at uh, the original intent of the founders. Similarly, with statutes, uh, Justice Gorsuch would look at what Congress actually wrote, not what he thought they should write or the broad purpose of the statute or how he would write it, uh, but rather what the Congress that enacted that statute uh, wrote. And both of these principles, originalism and textualism, are really key in determining who it is that governs. 
uh, as Justice Scalia wrote in one of his very last opinions, um, these principles determine whether it's our elected representatives who are vested in the Constitution with the power to write law, govern, or instead whether we're governed by an unelected committee of nine lawyers. Uh, and when you put it like that, I, I think most of us would vote um, to be governed by someone uh, whom we can vote in or out of office uh, rather than a judge or justice who has lifetime tenure. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting because I do think when you start thinking about it in those terms, um, that even if your preferences are for a more, a more expansive welfare state or um, you know, the, the kind of preferences that uh, you know, higher taxes, things that liberals usually are, are in favor of, um, you know, we should all trust this idea or try to use the court of, of opinion um, rather than just hope to you know, get our guys on the, on the court and then have them, um, you know, have them in charge. That does seem like a very dangerous precedent regardless of, of where you are. So uh, it's, I think it's important for us to remember the, the role that the, the Supreme Court um, is supposed to play and how just far away we've gotten, um, gotten from that in recent years and that it's, it would be a good thing probably for everybody if we kind of move back in the direction of letting the legislator legislative branch do what it's supposed to. Absolutely. And ironically, I think if the, the federal court stuck more to that role um, as a whole, we might have less controversy when it came to Supreme Court appointments. If the Supreme Court didn't weigh in as frequently on sort of large uh, political or controversial issues, if they left more of those things uh, to the elected branches, it might not be as controversial who the next justice uh, would be. Well, cool. Well, thank you, Erin. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. This is really such an important issue, and there's so much misinformation about the role of the Supreme Court that I think, you know, I hope we can cover this topic again soon. And to all of our listeners, thank you for your time. And for more information on issues like this, please be sure to visit us at IWF.org, where all issues are women's issues. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or Stop by IWF.org for similar content.